Hello, I'm Mark and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. So this week I want to think about authenticity and I'm asking the question, how authentic are you as a researcher? Now, I'm not trying to suggest that we're uh, all putting out uh, fake versions of ourselves, very far from it. Um, But uh, I want you to to just have a think about uh, the thing that you see on the surface when you Google your name, uh, what you represent yourself as on your university profile, what you might infer from looking at your Google Scholar profile. Uh, Actually, is that set of skills and expertise the sum total of your identity as a researcher? Or is there something more? Is there something missing? And actually, where does the framing of ourselves come from? Um, So, of course, behind my expertise uh, is my personality, it's my values, it's my principles, it's my way of understanding what knowledge is and what constitutes valid knowledge and how I go about doing research. Uh, And if you're looking for a team member, then there are a bunch of things that I'm great at and there are a bunch of limitations that you might have to work around. Uh, And actually, can I represent some of that stuff uh, as well? Uh, and beyond the the skills and the expertise, in addition to the the values, the the approaches, uh, all of that stuff, uh, actually, can I interrogate why it is that I chose those particular words to sum up my expertise? I mean, there are usually at least ten different ways in which you can cut that pie and you can frame your expertise, the contribution that you can make to yourself. And actually, when you look at this and you interrogate yourself, very often you discover that you did this uh, in relation to the current keywords, debates, words, phrases that have currency within your particular discipline. Um, And of course, if you've done that, then actually you may instantly be limiting the people who are going to read that profile and have any form of resonance uh, and relate to you and reach out to you because, well, okay, you don't do what I do. You're one of those people. You you identify yourself as part of a tribe, effectively, by the way you choose to frame your, your expertise. And I'm not going to say there's anything necessarily deeply wrong with this, um, uh, but but I want you to interrogate those assumptions uh, and ask yourself, actually, how deeply authentic is this? Uh, and is there something more that we should be representing uh, of ourselves to the world? And might there be some benefits of of being more deeply authentic about who we are and how we present ourselves as, uh, as researchers? Uh, for myself, I attempted to fashion myself as a, a world expert on uh, deserts and uh, uh, on peatlands at various points in, in my research uh, career. Uh, and I've always felt a fairly high degree of imposter syndrome. And I think in those times of my life in particular, I really felt that sense. Uh, of course, I don't know everything there is to know about deserts or peat bogs. Um, very, very far from that. Um, uh, and I think that uh, for me... Um, This was a process about understanding that if I stuck to the evidence um, and stuck to what I knew and what I could do and I acknowledged the limitations of that, then, well, I can pretty much overcome imposter syndrome most of the time and achieve what I need. I know enough. Um, But even when I had overcome imposter syndrome with these different ways of presenting myself, 
Um, I, I still had a problem. I didn't really feel comfortable in my skin identifying as a, as a peatland or a desert person. So I moved to an identity as a conservationist, which for me meant I was able to quite implicitly explain that, well, I am an interdisciplinarian. Um, I am going to have to be able to look across disciplines and be, to be able to say anything of value to conservation. Um, and uh, as a discipline, it is inherently uh, values-based. Um, and impact focused. Uh, if I do some research which actually has a negative impact on the environment or that nothing comes from, then I've kind of failed really as an applied researcher. Um, uh, and so so what I'm trying to illustrate here is, is how you can uh, just uh, when you start to think about how you frame your expertise, you can think, yeah, there are different ways of doing this. And actually, there, there are very different issues that, that, uh, that arise when you start to reframe who you are. Um, so uh, instantly, uh, I realised that, you know what, I framed my expertise the way I did because there were a bunch of people in disciplines who I respected, who I wanted to appeal to as an expert in peatland research or in desert research. And instantly, now I had reframed my expertise, I realised I felt quite embarrassed, especially in these particular groups of experts who knew everything about these particular environments. Um, because actually there is this huge bias in the academy that uh, that we all respect the experts in our field. Uh, these are the heroes at the top of our disciplines, uh, and they have very narrow expertise typically, but, but these are the people we respect. And we assume, well, I have to be like that. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but for me, that was never going to fit. Um, and so for me, it was about overcoming the fact that I feel quite embarrassed by not being an expert in anything. And to start with, I actually made excuses for myself. And I used to say, well, look, yeah, I'm a, I'm a jack of all trades, I'm a master of none, but um, but that's just who I am. Uh, and, and for me, becoming more comfortable in my skin as an impact-focused interdisciplinarian was about saying, well, you know what? Uh, yeah, this this might be how you would perceive an impact-focused interdisciplinarian as not having any expertise, not being a proper researcher, whatever. I'm not allowing that to colour my perception of myself. And I'm going to frame this to you as exactly what all teams need, uh, exactly what this discipline needs is someone who can make the connections to those other disciplines, someone who can spot the opportunities to make this relevant for new audiences and to achieve change um, based on, on that research. Research. Uh, and for me, this was about recognizing the values that had driven that change in persona. And so for me, uh, the, the values that were, were driving my framing of myself as an expert in deserts or, uh, or peat bogs was a set of values around people pleasing that I, I want to be respected, I want to be liked, I want people to think that I'm amazing at something, and my ego needs this. Uh, and realising that actually a much more powerful set of motivators uh, were these much more values-based uh, motivators uh, around making a difference and being able to make a difference at scale. Um, uh, and in doing so, the means to that end was seeing between the disciplines and joining the dots and seeing the, the big picture. I think that uh, for, for me then, uh, authenticity uh, is about understanding your contribution. 
uh, but doing so in a way that really deeply respects who you are as a person and values the whole of your contribution, not just the contribution you think that everyone uh, in your peer group or the heroes of your discipline uh, would uh, would like to see and to value uh, all of that uh, and become more at home and more confident in your identity uh, as, uh, as a researcher. In this episode, I want to, to think about authenticity in, in a fairly structured way. Uh, so I have a definition for you. Um, it's not my own definition, but I'll give my, you my take on this uh, as a definition. And I want to work through this. Uh, I'm going to do this through the lens of our professional lives. Uh, and I'm going to do it also with a few personal anecdotes. Because uh, for me, actually, um, uh, part of my authenticity as a researcher is that uh, I am an integrated person. Uh, I am a person who has values, who has opinions, who has feelings, um, uh, and that actually informs what I do and how I do it. Um, uh, and actually, you need to understand some of that, not all of my personal details, but some of that stuff if you want to understand who I am as a researcher and what it's going to be like working with me. Uh, and I think that as we get clearer on our professional identities, that can also then have a, an impact on how we see ourselves uh, in our personal lives as well, because these two are intimately connected. So uh, here's my definition, and uh, I'm going to break this down into five components. So this is based on the work of uh, academic psychologist Brene Brown, um, I forget which university she comes from, somewhere in the US. She's written a few um, popular books, so if you Google her name, you'll uh, at least find her popular books, Brene Brown. And uh, her definition of auth authenticity uh, has these five components. So component number one is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we should be and embracing who we are. Uh, and so clearly implicit in this is that interrogation of the assumptions behind how we frame who we are, how we understand who we are, to find out, is this genuinely all from within me, or is it coming from elsewhere, and how much of this is people-pleasing? Secondly, once we have let go of who we are, and let's remember this is a daily process, but let's, once we've begun to regularly let go of who we think we ought to be and embrace who we in fact are, uh, there, there is a problem. And that problem is that actually the, the things that we genuinely feel represent us are often things that we feel make us vulnerable. And that's why we've never put this out to the world. And we realise that actually part of the process of working out who we ought to be and who the world thinks we should be is a process of defending ourselves. And okay, so this might be who I genuinely am, but actually on some subconscious level, I'm hiding that because I know that if people discover that about me, that I'm open to critique. I'm open to people uh, calling me out on these limitations. No one's going to want to work with me if they realise these parts of who I am. Um, uh, very much that idea of jack of all trades, uh, master of none for me. Um, uh, and actually realising that, yeah, uh, being authentic means being vulnerable. Um, uh, and understanding that vulnerability, owning that vulnerability, and thinking about now how I can integrate uh, the different parts of myself and put out a self which is authentic, which recognises that vulnerability in a way which is safe. And um, we'll think about this in some more depth in a minute. That means that we need courage, and that's the third component of her definition. 
if we can daily let go of who we think we ought to be and embrace who we are in all of its vulnerability, then we need to have the courage to be imperfect. And I think for many researchers, this is a huge challenge. Perfectionism is a problem across the board in any profession, um, and it has its roots deep in our psychology. Uh, But there are a very strong set of uh, normative rules that tell us as researchers, you have no choice but to be perfect, because if you're wrong, if those numbers aren't quite right, and if this is only approximate... Um, you know what, that policy might be wrong. People might die. Um, uh, And that's all going to be on your head. Uh, And and so there's this really powerful set of norms that says we have to be perfect and we cannot put anything out into the world that is not 100% perfect. Uh, And of course, if we have an an authentic identity as a researcher that includes aspects of us that have limitations and that are vulnerable, then actually built into my new identity as a researcher are those imperfections. Uh, And that takes courage. I need to think about how actually I can frame these imperfections in ways that do not undermine my credibility, uh, the authority that I might have in certain arenas where I I need to have power and influence if I'm going to actually make a difference and change the world. Um, But at the same time, uh, that imperfection, when framed appropriately, can in fact be the power to make people realise, you know what, I'm a real person. Uh, I, I don't always get everything right. I have limitations and I accept those limitations. Uh, and actually now there is the room for two-way conversation. There is the room for learning. Uh, there is that humility there built in. The fourth element of our definition is cultivating compassion. Uh, And for me, that is primarily compassion to myself, uh, but that uh, then flows from self-compassion to compassion for others uh, as part of uh, an authenticity that that, that will be fundamentally empathic uh, in nature, a theme that you might have noticed running through uh, this podcast. Um, And for me, that is essential because actually what drives us to perfectionism is a lack of self-compassion. I I beat myself up for every tiny mistake that I make uh, and I become increasingly cautious and frightened because of the shame I will heap on my own head, let alone the shame that will come to me from everyone else if I mess up, if this is any less than perfect. And so for me, that self-compassion is what gives me the permission to not always be perfect. Um, And then finally, setting boundaries. Uh, And for me, boundary setting is part of compassion. Uh, Actually, uh, self-compassion requires me to set a set of boundaries around myself that says, okay, uh, this is who I am uh, in that full, beautiful, complex reality that is me, which includes my limitations, my vulnerabilities. Uh, but I'm doing this in ways which are safe, that have boundaries that um, mean that that this that I'm not going to inherently be hurt by this process, that enables me to be authentic without constantly having to erect um, barriers, put on armour, stick out spines and become bristly, um, uh, that enables this to be an identity that, that opens channels of empathy uh, and that people can relate to. Uh, and that starts, initiates collaborations, discussions, um, and relationships. So authenticity, the daily practice of letting go of who we think we should be, embracing who we are in all its vulnerability, 
with the courage to be imperfect, cultivating compassion and setting boundaries. The first of these five things, then, let's unpack what this is about and think through some examples that will get you to start really thinking for yourself about what in your world letting go of who you should be and embracing who you are might look like. First of all, I think it's important to, to contrast um, the, the ideas that we have at the moment um, with what we might feel might be more authentic or, or deeper or fully um, as a representation of ourselves. So have a look, do, do a Google search of yourself, um, do it with a Google incognito search so you get what the world sees rather than what Google will put in front of you if you Google yourself uh, on a regular basis. So find out what that is. What does that look like? Um, what is that persona, that identity, that brand perhaps that, that might be out there about you. Piece that together from the various different fractured parts of yourself that you find in that Google search. And what is that? Uh, what does that look like? Is that one narrow part of yourself? Is that a whole load of very different parts which are highly fractured and don't really add up and make any sense? Is it biased towards one part of yourself? And how fully authentic is this? And in particular, have a look at the elements of yourself that you feel are important to you, that make you who you are, that are vulnerable. The parts of yourself that you're perhaps less proud of, but that are actually important if people are going to be able to work well with you, that people find out very quickly about you when they work with you, and that you can, of course, frame in more positive ways. Uh, and it's not about making everything positive. I have weaknesses. I have failings. I, I'm not perfect. Um, but, but let's think about this um, in relation. And what you'll instantly find, I think, is that there is at least some level of disconnect. We don't present our full selves. And of course, for good reason. I don't want to air my dirty laundry. I don't want to put out all of my personal secrets and, uh, and failings in order to attract critique um, and create problems for myself. Um, but have a look at this and just ask yourself, well, are there elements here that, that I may want to, to build in? Um, and when you start to think about which elements of yourself that you're not currently putting out there that are actually important to you and make you vulnerable, uh, it becomes possible to start curating an, a, an identity that you feel more comfortable signing up to and that will reduce the likelihood of imposter syndrome. For me, the, the key cause of imposter syndrome is that we have a set of expectations out there in the world that do not match how we feel about ourselves. And you feel that there's a mismatch, that the world expects this of me, and when they get me, they discover this imperfect reality. Um, uh, and, uh, and actually, the more we can align that imperfect reality in ways which are safe uh, and are as far as possible positive, I think then the less we are eaten up by imposter syndrome and the more confidently we actually put ourselves out there as not overselling ourselves, but authentically saying, yeah, this is me. Um, uh, if I give you a couple of examples here, um, 
Uh, I think um, uh, for for me, the, the an example of that jack of all trades, master of none weakness that is me as an impact focused interdisciplinarian, uh, and this is a big this is a big weakness. I mean, a lot of people are, are really nervous about putting that kind of identity out there because truly that undermines my expertise. People only listen to me because I am an expert, the expert perhaps, um, uh, and uh, and if I put out there that actually you know what I I'm a generalist. I, I work across, I work between, uh, doesn't that f- fundamentally undermine my position, my credibility, my authority? Well, maybe, depending on the kind of research you do in the position you want to have and how you view what knowledge is. Uh, in my case, uh, the most recent example of this is a project I'm leading. This is a, a flagship project uh, for my funder. It's uh, the largest uh, grant from that funder for my department in its history. Um, it's a £1.5 million project uh, called Resilient Dairy Landscapes, and I am the principal investigator. Uh, and um, uh, one minor flaw is about dairy systems, um, and I know nothing about dairy. Well, not nothing, but very little, and that remarkably little. <laughs> and um, uh, and instantly, in the first month of our project, uh, the, the the flaws in my 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 understanding of this issue uh, or this area were very quickly exposed um, when I put together a project flyer um, and put a picture of a cow on the front. Um, and my project team told me, Mark, you do realise that you put a picture of a bull on the front of that uh, of that leaflet, don't you? Ah, really? And uh, you do realise, Mark, that uh, milk comes from cows? Okay, uh, lesson learned. Uh, and luckily, no farmers uh, or policymakers or anyone else saw this picture. Um, uh, my, my team caught this. Uh, and of course, for, for me, there, there was an instant, oh my goodness, moment of what on earth am I doing? How on earth do I think I can lead a project like this about dairy? And I don't even know how to distinguish between cows and bulls. Um, uh, others, I mean, you think this is quite easy, but apparently not. Um, uh, so uh, so it was a huge confidence knock for, for me thinking, oh my goodness, can I do this? Is this going to be just really embarrassing? Um, and very quickly, I went back to my own values, to actually why I decided to do this project in the first place, and remembered that, yeah, I didn't take this on because I want to become a world expert in dairy. I took this on because it was an interesting context, an interesting lens through which to look at some much bigger, much more important issues that resonate at an international scale across different sectors, environments, contexts. Uh, and for me, uh, it's about my expertise as an interdisciplinarian who is impact-focused uh, that then enables me to generate insights of far greater academic significance and originality than someone who was only focused on dairy could do, that would have far greater real-world significance, and uh, the ability that I have then to open doors in terms of impact that mean that actually I'm in a unique position. I am well qualified to be principal investigator of this project, even if I do need a few um, lessons from my children on uh, where where milk comes from. Um, uh, I think then taking this more more personally, um, uh, society gives us a lot of things. So I'm asking you to to interrogate 
uh, where your framing, how you chose those three words to sum up yourself on your CV when someone tells you, where, where did they come from in terms of your peer group, the people in your discipline who create the norms and the assumptions that you've taken unquestioningly and you've used now to frame what you do that puts you as in their group and of course then excludes you from other debates, from other groups. Uh, and that may be our discipline. Uh, it may be broader than that. And actually, I think that there are many parts of our identities that are given to us unthinkingly, unquestioningly, perhaps, by society that we can interrogate uh, usefully. So um, for me, as a man, uh, I, I struggle a lot with the fact that I'm not an emasculine man. I'm, I'm a very feminine man in a lot of ways. And uh, society... Um, certainly in the part of the world that, that I live in, uh, tells me that, uh, that somehow that's not good enough, that my children will innately be losing out. Uh, my dream car uh, sitting outside my house um, at present is, is a new Beetle. Um, and uh, to, to my horror, when I discovered that the, the new edition of the Beetle um, didn't uh, have a, a pot for a, a vase for a, uh, a flower, I made my own vase. And there is proudly sitting on that dashboard a big white flower. Uh, my flower power car um, uh, is, is my dream car. Uh, and apparently they did that because, uh, because it wasn't appealing to men. Men didn't like the fact that there was a flower in the car. Uh, and, and clearly, yeah, I, I'm not the man that they're trying to appeal to. <laughs> I, I, I'm learning um, with my kids to appreciate watching rugby and football, but it does not come naturally. Um, and my wife does all of DIY because we have had so many disasters that there's just no point in me even attempting to do this stuff. Um, uh, and, and for me, it's about then saying, well, okay, uh, rather than allowing that to eat away on my subconscious, um, and it does, it's not something, uh, as an academic, uh, clearly, I don't believe in these stereotypes. I, I actually, on my conscious mind, I want to fight against those kind of stereotypes, especially with my children. But you know what? It can eat away at your confidence just slowly and subtly in the background. And so I'm trying to, on purpose, reframe my contribution to society, to my family, as a more feminine man, as that actually I make my living from my brain power and not from the cleverness of my hands and my practical abilities and that is okay that's good and that means that I'm a thoughtful husband and father that provokes interesting conversation that gets my kids to think more critically than perhaps they might otherwise do. I do cooking with my son, uh, so he will hopefully be a, a better cook when he leaves uh, home than I did with the stereotypical things I was told I should do when I was growing up. Uh, I do stamp collecting with one of my daughters. I do music with one of my other daughters. These are gifts, uh, and they are valuable gifts uh, and, uh, and things that, that we can treasure that are not masculine, uh, but are still just as valuable as uh, teaching them how to fix a car uh, or play sports. Or, or whatever else. Um, I think um, uh, my most recent um, <laughs> failing in this, um, which just goes to show you how deeply this, this stuff kind of gets ingrained and how unquestionably we do this, was that I got invited to a, a party. Um, uh, so my wife was in, invited to a reading group thing. All the mums um, in the local area kind of got together. And so the dads decided that they would have their own party. Uh, and instantly it provoked all of these anxieties in me. So I don't get out that much. Let's, let's just be honest here. Or at least I do, but with fairly unique 
people uh, like me, uh, not with normal people. Um, uh, and instantly I'm thinking, oh my goodness, uh, this is going to be challenging. Uh, so I took some advice for some friends uh, and they instantly told me, don't take a bottle of red wine, you need to go with a four-pack of beers. Uh, whether you drink them or not, it's irrelevant. The wine is bad, beer is good. Okay, so um, yeah, and hey, I'm just going straight into all these stereotypes and like, right, I'm going to try and try and fit in with these guys and, and be accepted and not embarrass myself. Um and I got there and, and everyone's um, chatting about DIY and uh, all the latest kind of raw plug that is somehow magical um, and uh, how they've, you know, we live in an agricultural community, so various ways of fixing tractors and, um, and things like that. <laughs> and, um, and I'm sitting there wondering how to even come into this. And then it moves to sport, I'm even more lost. Um, and at a certain point, someone starts moaning about their kids and I'm like, ah, kids, I've got kids, we're all dads, great a point of, of, of connection here and so I figured why don't we yeah maybe share some ideas of cool places you can take your kids at the weekend um, and I asked the question made some suggestions and yeah it kind of fell silent um, and it was quite clear that um, swapping ideas about cool places to go with your kids was not the point of the conversation the point of the conversation was to moan about your kids um, uh, so I'm back to square one again um, and that was it I mean nothing uh, and by the end of the conversation it was a little bit awkward uh, we're a few hours in and one of these guys turns to me and says Mark you've not really said much um, so uh, he tries to yeah, take, I, mean, I can see him he's taking pity on me the poor guy um, so I see you kind of live up in this house next to, next to the forest what's it like living so close to the forest and this was my opportunity and oh my goodness I, I blew it so badly um and I was like oh just last weekend you should uh, yeah you need to go all right so if you go up around this corner and over this little hill you know where the such and such is on the left there's this massive patch of wild raspberries I went with the kids last weekend. We collected enough wild raspberries to make five jars of jam. And it is just the most amazing wild raspberry jam that you've ever tasted. And I could see these guys' faces. And there was this complete silence. And I was like, shit, that was not what I was meant to have said. And the conversation moved on. Soon after that, I made my excuses. And I was the first person to leave the, 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 the party. Uh, and the parting shot was, uh, so we'll see you at the farmer's market with your jam stall then, Mark. Yeah, see you. It was fairly excruciating. My attempt to fit in <laughs> fell uh, fairly badly flat because I'm just not that kind of guy. Um, uh, and of course, I'm going, walking back up the road to my house uh, with all of these insecurities and complexes around around my head and thinking to myself, Mark, why did you try and do that? Why did you try and fit in and be someone that you're not? And you know what? If those guys want you to be someone and want to, to take the mick out of you for not being like them, then hey, so be it. I'm bigger than that and that should not actually uh, bother me. Uh, but I think what, what I'm asking you to, to think about here is, is actually where do you, these identities come from? Who gives them to you? How unquestioningly do we have elements of our identity, both in our personal and our professional lives, that we've not really thought about? Uh, and actually, might we feel a bit more comfortable in our skins, a bit less likely to experience imposter syndrome, if we could actually have a more holistic uh, and complete understanding of who we are and put that out to, to the world. Now, as I said earlier, there is, of course, a problem. Uh, I've now, hopefully, begun to let go of who the world, my colleagues, want me to be. Uh, and, uh, and now I'm embracing who I actually am. 
and of course, who I actually am, um, involves vulnerabilities because that may not be exactly what the world wants, what my colleagues want of me. And there is that point of difference that is by definition that vulnerability. And of course, the question comes, well, what if nobody likes that part of me? What if everyone prefers the perfect me, the shiny version of myself that I pitched to fit in with them much more, and they now are not interested in collaborating with me? They feel a bit embarrassed by me. They, yeah, they fall away. Um, well, for me, the first thing is, well, you know what? Great, actually, I'd far rather work with collaborators who value me for what I actually am and what I genuinely have to offer at that deeper level. And I will start to develop new collaborations at that deep level where I feel way more relaxed, way more confident, way more able to contribute than I did in that version of myself that was designed to, to fit in. Uh, and of course, others uh, may um, start uh, shaming you uh, for those parts of yourself that that don't fit in. And so for me, this is a journey that requires us to be fairly resilient and to, to think in advance about how we're going to deal with that. So for me, uh, I do a lot of work with uh, with social scientists, and I find that social scientists are more likely to do this than anyone else, but it does go across the, the board. Um, and for me, the, the most regular shaming experience that I experience from my colleagues around my interdisciplinarity is name-dropping. Uh, and so there's a, a conversation that happens, and uh, and they are now name-dropping um, all of these um, uh, isms and... Um, uh, and names of key authors in the field. And of course, uh, according to such and such, uh, there is this theory that says so-and-so. Um, and if we just take a, a, a such-and-such uh, Aryan approach, uh, then we, of course we all know what that means, uh, then, then this is how we can solve the problem. And I'm sitting there going, a, a what approach? A, but who? What is this person? And the way in which it's framed is just you know, so obviously, we would all know who this person is, that I don't dare say, uh, who is that person? What was their theory? What What are you talking about? Uh, and what I've learned over the years is just to get enough confidence, and it did take me some time, I will confess. As an early career academic, I found this very hard. Uh, but now as a professor, I find it much easier to say, uh, actually, who? What? What are you talking about? And I can see this kind of sigh of relief around the table because nobody else knew what they were talking about either. Uh, and they are then forced to explain exactly what it is. Um, and at that point, the shaming, actually, this was implicit to start with, now it becomes explicit because they're now saying to me, uh, the founder of our discipline, uh, sir such and such, OBE, whatever it is, uh, the dude, the person that we all know about, uh, pregnant pause no never heard of them tell me more and doing that in a way that for me is not embarrassed that says well hey if i haven't heard of them there's a good chance someone else hasn't heard of them i'm sorry that you think that because i publish in your field that i should have known about that and that you now think less of me but tell me more and maybe we can actually have a conversation that we can all join in and uh, with that doesn't now make you look like you're cleverer than everyone else and make everyone else feel inadequate um for, for for me, the, the story I told you about um, uh, with uh, see you at the farmers market comment that was the ultimate capping on on the shame that, that I experienced in uh, in in my party uh, party from from hell. Um, 
uh, and uh, and uh, and for me owning the the feminine uh, parts of myself and saying you know this is who I am and valuing that means that I have to be able to say you know what I'm not coming with my four pack and uh, my rehearsed topics of conversations I'm coming as I am and if that means I sit back and listen to everyone else and don't say anything then so be it um, I'll sit and, uh, and enjoy my wine in the corner <laughs> uh, and that's fine um, I think that the, there are often two responses that we have though in that moment and I think it's worth calling them to consciousness because uh, in that moment where we've decided that I'm going to be authentic and instantly I'm putting myself I'm, I'm put in my place and, and I'm shamed in some way um, uh, we, we either shrink um, uh, or we puff up um, and I think that neither of those are healthy responses and let's just be honest it's, it's going to happen um, uh, and um, uh, and I think that in that personal situation uh, with me, I, I shrunk into that corner. I, I felt acutely embarrassed um, uh, in front of the other dads in that in that party, um, and uh, and disowned parts of myself uh, that was deeply inauthentic. That actually, for me, as I've looked back on that, uh, it is that shrinking back from and that disowning of myself that I feel most ashamed of. Um, and I've forgiven myself. I don't feel ashamed now. Um, uh, but for me, actually when you feel something like that you need to interrogate why it makes you feel like that um, so shrinking back is a is a regressive step it's often quite damaging um, and you typically shrink back to that position that is the people-pleasing version of yourself that everyone wants but of course there is an alternative um, which is that well you know what you've made me feel inadequate um, by name dropping this person and telling me that I should know them because they founded our discipline uh, so I'm now going to put you in your place by uh, explaining why I am the world expert in something else um, and why actually I don't think they are the world the founder of the discipline and something else is far more important and why uh, in some way I start, I start nitpicking at that person I'm undermining them uh, I've myself up and uh, actually as a defense to my ego my ego has been bruised uh, by that shaming comment um, and now uh, rather than dealing with that e e bruised ego in a healthy way I've puffed up to defend myself and I'm hitting back and we've now got a really dysfunctional meeting happening um, I think that um, uh, if you're trying uh, so I think I think you need to stand your ground. Uh, ultimately, uh, this is um, a journey, uh, and we will falter. Uh, we're not always going to get this right. And give yourself some compassion, which is what we're coming on to. Give yourself some compassion. You will shrink back sometimes. Uh, you will puff up sometimes. This this isn't always going to work. But we need to try and stand uh, our ground. Uh, because authenticity is not about being liked. That means you may be disliked for being authentic. Uh, and actually, if you can have the courage to be authentic, that courage can be, your, can, can be contagious. And you can discover that actually now other people sitting around that table have the courage to start asking questions as well uh, that actually for the very first time enable them to contribute to this project because they can understand the jargon, because they ask someone to unpack it and you give people permission to be themselves. If you're trying to be liked, then uh, criticism um, is, I would argue, more likely to be shaming. 
But if you're trying to be authentic and you're committed to that cause, then yeah, it's going to hurt. But I would argue that it is much less likely to lead to lasting or deep or damaging shame. The third of these uh, elements now is, is about being fully yourself. Um, and sorry, uh, the third of these is about uh, having the courage to be imperfect. Um, and, and being fully yourself is, uh, for me, what gives us that courage. Uh, so this is a, a courage now that comes from within. This is not the courage that you get by fitting in. And there is a kind of false courage, I believe, that comes from saying, you know what, uh, I stand with my discipline. I stand with the jargon um, of all of these people who created this in-crowd, and I am now in that in-crowd, and I have this false sense of confidence that whatever I say, because I reinforce all of those norms and assumptions from my in-group, my in-group will stand behind me, they will protect my interests. Um, and and there is this, this sense of confidence that you have, but it's a thin confidence because you're not entirely sure how much you believe it. You're not entirely sure how you deal with the critiques that come that undermine the consensus of your discipline. Um, uh, and what we're looking for here is um, a kind of courage that actually comes from within when you take a committed, pro a committed approach to authenticity. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to suggest that that this is fairly challenging, um, uh, and for me, one of the reasons that why why this is so challenging is that if uh, I am fused in my identity with my work, which I think many of us are, uh, especially the more workaholic tendencies we have, uh, very often the same psychology that drives us to workaholism drives us to increasingly fuse our personal identity, our sense of self with our identity as a researcher, as our work identity. Then when something goes wrong professionally, uh, when I have that shaming experience, then it's not just that I got that wrong. It's not just that I felt humiliated in front of my peers and that was an experience that happened to me in work today and I go home and put it behind me. Actually, this is now a fundamentally shaming experience on that level of who I am. Because if I am my work and I am fused in my identity with my work, that comment actually was about me. Uh, that experience of shame, that sense of of, of inadequacy um, is about me. That mistake is, is me. I am that mistake. It's not that I just made uh, a mistake. Um, and if I fully understand myself in all of my fullness and complexity, and I value my strengths and vulnerabilities, then I can accept the inevitability of mistakes without them threatening my self-identity uh, and my self-worth. Uh, so there are these two ways that this can go. Uh, I need courage if I am to accept that, you know what, I'm not perfect, I'm going to make mistakes. Uh, if I am going to value myself in my full complexity, which includes vulnerabilities, uh, and for me, the first step in being able to do that is to identify the extent to which I am fused in my identity with my work so that I can defuse that, uh, separate that, um, so that I, I am more resilient when I make mistakes uh, and I'm more able to actually accept, yeah, 
I messed up at work today. That doesn't mean I'm completely wrong as a person. It doesn't mean that I am a mistake. It doesn't mean that I need to feel ashamed. I made a mistake. I feel bad about this. I'm going to do what I can to rectify that. And I, I retain that sense of self-identity and worth. And in fact, the fact that I have admitted to my mistake and I've now apologised, I've gone back, I've sorted out the issue, that plays into that authentic self of, who, of self that I am. That, that uh, plays into that part of myself that says, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I make amends. Uh, I don't know everything, but when I make a mistake, I correct things. Uh, when I don't know the answer, I go and I find it out. And I'm still useful. Uh, a recent example for me was a, a, a training uh, that I did, um, uh, and this has never happened to me before, but I, I flunked it. I, I completely bottomed out uh, on this training. So this is one of the things I enjoy most, uh, and I think I'm pretty good at it. I get, um, on average, between 95% and 100% positive feedback from the, the trainings that, that I do, wherever I am, with whatever group. Um, uh, but this day, things went wrong. Um, so uh, I uh, discovered that um, a very close family member uh, was uh, ill, probably terminally ill, terminally ill. Uh, and it was uh, it was devastating news for me. And uh, I went then um, to Wales to go and say my goodbyes um, to to this family member. Uh, that involved cancelling a whole load of stuff uh, and involved me cancelling. Um, uh, one training, I think, and a bunch of other meetings and events. Uh, so I did that. I put myself first. I put my family first. Uh, I was authentic to my values, um, uh, and and I went um, and I said my goodbyes. Uh, as a process, that was really cathartic for me. Um, uh, it was hard. It was challenging, but I felt like yeah, uh, I've done what I needed to do. I feel okay. Uh, and uh, the next day was another training. Um, and the question was, well, do I just sit around? I, I can't get back home because of the way my travel's booked and just do nothing for a day. Um, or do I train? And you know, I feel okay. I feel good. I, I feel like I've done what I need to do. Let's not just drag this out. Let's just go and do the training. Bad mistake. <laughs> we all make them. Um, uh, it turns out that uh, I was still processing stuff uh, on a subconscious level. Um, uh, and uh, and I was distracted. I I messed up my timings. I I misidentified my audience. Um, I I started to trail off. I forgot what people asked me with questions and answered different questions. I mean, it was it was a mess. Um, and uh, I went to the training organizer in the break, um, and she was incredibly compassionate. And I explained what was going on. I apologized. I said I was going to pull myself together. And she said, look, Mark, I've seen you do training before. This is not what you normally do. This is not doing you any justice or us any justice. Go and take the rest of the day off, get yourself better, reorganise this training. And uh, and so I said, OK, well, we'll, we'll finish the, the session after the, after the break and then yeah, I, I'll, I'll cut loose and we'll reorganise the afternoon for another day. And I had to explain in very brief terms what was going on to the audience uh, and cancel cancel the rest of the training. Um, I've never been, never actually been asked to stop a training because I was so bad. Um, and I mean, that's that's my bad friend. That, that's my shame kind of self saying, you know what, you were that bad, you were asked to stop training. I mean, it, it, it doesn't get, ever get any worse than that. Uh, and I went out of that absolutely filled with shame. I can't believe that I just did that. What an idiot. I was angry with myself. I was embarrassed. It was it was it was really excruciating. 
Um, but by the end of that day, I'd taken those feelings, I'd analyse, well, look, where does that come from? And yeah, I would like those people to have liked me, to have liked what I'd done, to have, uh, for that not to have happened. But ultimately, uh, I have a set of values which is about valuing myself and my family. I thought I put them first. It turned out I hadn't. Um, uh, there were various cues that I probably could have seen that I can see now with hindsight. I'm not going to do this again. I learned from this. And actually, I enacted those values by yeah, rearranging an entire full day of training free of charge, extra books, and make up for this stuff. Um, uh, and I do it again properly. And I don't feel ashamed about this. I don't feel embarrassed about this. I made a mistake. I'm making up for that mistake. And I'm doing what I do best um, based on my values. So... We make mistakes. We need the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make mistakes. And when I make those mistakes, I don't default into my old people self, people-pleasing identity. I retain the courage of my convictions uh, and, uh, and I retain authenticity. The fourth of my five elements now is uh, cultivating compassion. Uh, and for me, this is primarily about self-compassion. Um, but uh, but that then from that then flows... Uh, compassion for others. Uh, and so uh, for me, this was about having compassion on myself um, uh, in that last example to take the time off work, um, to not beat myself up for the mistake that I'd made by going back to work too, too early. Um, and I think this is something that a lot of us are not good at. You, know? you look at how much compassion you give your team members, um, uh, your family members, others around you when they're ill, when they mess up, when they make mistakes. Do you give yourself that same level of compassion? And I think there are very few of us who actually do. Uh, and I think that uh, that for me is an essential lesson if we are able to be authentically and fully ourselves and to have the courage to be, um, uh, to, to be uh, imperfect. Uh, and so this is now uh, uh, for me, uh, about a, a series of processes, uh, actions, behaviours, uh, things that, that I do that enable me to cultivate my uh, empathy skills so that I cultivate compassion towards myself um, uh, and to, towards my teams. Uh, so uh, in the productive research, I talked about the many story approach, which is a method that I use to uh, identify unhelpful stories I tell about myself, to catch those stories and to then retell those stories in more, more evidence-based and empowering ways. So I'm not hiding from the truth if I've done something bad, but I'm looking at my strengths, uh, the success stories, I'm building on them, and I'm identifying those positive stories and telling them to myself on purpose. Um, I, I then extend that then to try to be more compassionate with the, the people around me. Um, so, for example, um, uh, for me, when the Brexit vote happened, that for me on a personal level was, uh, was, a, it was a bereavement. I, I, I went through the phases of, phases of grief as I grieved the imminent loss of a part of my identity that I never actually realised was important uh, to me before, that I am a European. Um, and for me, as part of that process, rather than um, just going out and attacking Brexiteers, this was about identifying those people, finding out who they are and asking them, 
why did you vote how you voted? Um, and I, I sought people out in my local community, in my church, uh, in taxi. Taxi drivers turned out to be a very rich theme of, of, uh, of, of Leave supporters. And I just asked why. And, and really why, and I went deep, uh, without presenting my own views, without trying to change anyone's opinion, just to understand and put myself in their shoes and say, right, I still don't agree with this, but I can see where these people were coming from, and now I can move over that anger uh, phase in my grief and begin to accept um, uh, what, what it seems is, is going to happen. Uh, I've got a, a conflict uh, on, ongoing with a, a colleague at my work at the moment, and one of the things I've been doing um, as part of that conflict is to try as often as I can to meditate on that colleague um, uh, and to imagine that colleague as happy as I can possibly imagine them. Um, so it's a visualisation technique, um, uh, and, uh, and I start with this spark of light and allow it to grow from the centre of me outwards. Uh, and in the centre of that light, I then put this image of, of this person, and, um, and I just imagine that person as happy as they could possibly be, and I wish happiness on this person. And in so doing, uh, I take away the, the thoughts of, I don't like this person, or I feel angry, or I feel injustice, or whatever it is, um, so that when I meet this person day to day, I can be entirely uh, professional and beyond professional, kind, supportive, compassionate, despite the conflict that is, is ongoing uh, between us. Um, the final element now is balancing compassion with boundaries, and you can see where this is going already with this. These all build one on the other. Um, and, uh, and for me, if I have self-compassion, then that is what enables me now to draw the line uh, when I need to draw that line to protect myself. Uh, and this is not about airing my, my dirty washing, um, telling people all of my failings, every mistake that I've made, um, and uh, oversharing with people uh, in order to be fully authentic um, uh, and put all my vulnerabilities out there. Uh, this is uh, about identifying myself in the fullness of who I am uh, and presenting that in as positive uh, a, a way as, as I possibly can that does not make me innately vulnerable. Um, uh, and invite, sorry, it does make me innately vulnerable, but it doesn't invite um, criticism, it doesn't make me um, innately at risk or of attack. Uh, I'm not inviting that um, in the way that I'm doing this. Um, but now what I'm, uh, what I'm doing is I'm drawing lines uh, around myself that says, okay, so this is who I am, uh, and there are certain things that I won't share. Uh, there are certain places that I won't go. Um, uh, and so uh, on social media, you know, I've just, I've just kind of done that uh, on, on my podcast. Um, so I hope not too many people listen to this. Um, but on social media, I will not tell people how I voted uh, in the referendum because I, I don't want to undermine my credibility as, uh, uh, as someone who does research that is relevant to, to Brexit. Um, uh, and there are some very clear lines about what I will and won't um, talk about and what I will and won't disclose um, in terms of things that I think are just not helpful to, to others um, and vulnerabilities that could be exploited by people to undermine evidence that uh, my vote has no bearing on whatsoever. Um, so uh, I am doing this in, uh, in terms of my, uh, my personal life and in terms of my ethics and the boundaries I draw with colleagues. So 
Uh, you will have heard a few weeks ago I talked about workplace bullying and four resilience strategies that you can use to become more able to cope with um, the, the cut and thrust of academic life, which very often verges on intimidation and very often leaves us feeling demeaned. Um, and there are things that we can do, but for me at a certain point, a line is crossed and if it is necessary, I will then take that to a formal bullying procedure. Um, and you need to know what that line is uh, and at what point this has gone beyond resilience strategies um, and uh, and making yourself safe and making your team safe um, informally to something which is much more much more concrete um, as, uh, as a boundary. Um, I think that uh, for many of us, uh, going with the flow um, uh, rather than uh, creating conflict is, is very uh, attractive. Um, uh, and I think it's, it's worth um, just being aware that being authentic will require boundaries at a certain point. Uh, and if you are fully authentic and committed to always go with the flow and never having any conflict, um, uh, then, uh, then yeah, being yourself when yourself is not exactly what everyone else wants, not what everyone likes, will involve people trying to change you, trying to make you back into that person that is convenient for them. Uh, and that will require you to draw boundaries and that will inevitably lead to conflict uh, in some cases. Um, so create those boundaries to protect your own self-esteem so that more and more can bounce off you so that you become more and more strong and resilient in the face of those who would try and push you back into shrinking into that version of yourself that they want to see. Uh, and as I exercise those boundaries and I draw those boundaries more certainly, uh, I build an inner confidence to believe in myself and to continue to be that imperfect, vulnerable, whole person that I really am, rather than putting on a hard exterior and bristling up constantly to protect myself. The journey towards authenticity is, is something for me that um, is a, a wholehearted journey that uh, is not only about our professional selves, but is uh, something that has to be done on a personal level as well. So I think as you think about what you can do from uh, what I've told you in today's podcast, think about this in both parts of your life and think about how those parts of your life connect uh, and how you can be more authentic uh, as a researcher. Uh, representing who you are in your personal capacity uh, in ways which are still professional but that channel the fullest parts of yourself and vice versa, those parts of yourself that you express in your work that actually might bring some clarity and some, some goodness to your personal relationships that, that is not there at the moment. We are integrated people uh, and as we become more authentic in our work uh, we can grow more in our personal lives. So take a, a long, hard look at what you have put out into the world, um, what the world sees when they Google you, and ask yourself, how authentic is that? How deeply authentic is that compared to what you look at and see when you look inside yourself? And ask yourself whether you can start practicing a deeper form of authenticity on a daily basis, daily 
letting go of who we think we should be and embracing who we are, rejoicing in the vulnerability that that inherently means we have to accept, that having the courage to embrace that uh, in all of its imperfection and cultivating the compassion for ourselves that we need to be able to embrace that imperfection whilst cultivating daily practices that enable us to cultivate compassion for those around us and keeping ourselves safe, setting the boundaries that we need to be genuinely authentic and yet safe at the same time.